Hello, my dear friends. This is Rabbi Yaakov Volby coming to you live from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. I hope you're doing well. Hope you're having a fantastic and wonderful and splendid day. And I'm looking forward to this week's edition of the Parsha Podcast. And I have a quick announcement that I want to make before we start. And that is that, please God, in the first week of March, we are going to be hosting our annual fundraiser, our annual campaign. As veteran listeners know, our philosophy, our organizational philosophy is that we don't try to fundraise every day. And you know, I don't come to every podcast and say, oh, give us donations. God forbid I don't place any ads over here because that's not what we're here for. We're here to teach Torah. We're here to spread the message. We're here to share the love. We're here to connect Jews and Judaism. We're here to accomplish our mission. That's what we're here for. But of course, we need to fundraise because our organization cannot exist. All the podcasts, all the great work of Torch cannot exist unless we have everyone's support, unless we have the supporters and the partners and the donors who want to generously partner with us in what we do. And our philosophy is one day or one week a year, we're going to dedicate it to fundraising and we're going to work really hard and reach out to everyone we know to get them to help support the great work of Torch. Everyone works like mad. It's all hands on deck to try to make the campaign a success. And it's exciting because it's coming up first week in March. So stay tuned for that. If I have your number, I'm going to be calling you. I call everyone whose number I have. And even some people whose number I don't have, everyone's going to work really hard. Hopefully, we're going to get 100% participation, and it's going to be a success this year as well. Now, this year, we're doing a little bit of a unique little plan, a little wrinkle, if you will, and that is that we're trying to do like an old-school telethon, 12 hours each day, Tuesday and Wednesday of the first week of March. I think it's the 3rd and the 4th. It's going to be hosted by our board president, Dan Coleman, and he's going to fill up the whole day with interviews and little highlights of what we do here at Torch. So that way, when we're actually doing the fundraiser, people could participate both in watching the telethon and maybe even being interviewed on the telethon and seeing all the rabbis and all the rabbitsons and all the hubbub that's going to be going on over here at the Torch Center. And if you would like to participate in that. If you want to be interviewed and share maybe with the audience, with the world at large, how Torch and maybe how the Torch podcast and maybe even how the Parsha podcast has helped you, has impacted you, you want to be part of this, email me, rabbiwalby at gmail.com. And of course, as always, you can email me not just with discussions about that, any questions, any comments, any feedback of any sort is something that I look forward to and I appreciate. This week is Parsha's Mishpatim. And of course, the bulk of the Parsha deals with all the laws, all the interpersonal laws that the Jewish people got after the Sinai experience. In fact, as someone who has the great fortune of having spent time in yeshiva, when you read through the Parsha, you feel like you're reliving and reenacting some of the joy, some of the delight that you spent with the Talmudic tractates that deal with these Torah portions, and it's almost like you're rekindling the love that you had for these sections. Of course, every verse has like pages and pages of corresponding Talmudic literature. I know chapter 22, verse 1, where it talks about the thief who burrows in and that person's life, so to speak, is up for grabs. If you shoot the intruder, 
You don't have to be judged for that. That person has no blood in the words of the Torah. That is a subject that I had the great fortune of spending a lot of time studying. In fact, I even wrote many essays on that subject. So it's a wonderful Parsha for everyone and certainly for someone who has had the great fortune of spending time in yeshiva. But all the way at the end of the parsha, it goes back to the Sinai experience. And it's a little bit hard to follow because if I were to ask you, hey, where does the Torah talk about Sinai and the Sinai revelation? You would say, well, it talks about it in Exodus chapter 20, Parshish Yisro, what we read last week. But the truth is that the Sinai story is divided up amongst many places in the Torah. Of course, there's last week, Parshish Yisro, chapter 20. And then there's this week, Chapter 24, at the very end of our parsha, it fills out a lot of the details of what happened before and after the Sinai revelation. And then, of course, the narrative jumps to talking about the laws of the tabernacle. And then in a couple of weeks, Parsha Kisisa, it goes back to Sinai when Moshe comes down from the mountain and the Jewish people are sitting with the golden calf. And then you fast forward all the way to the book of Deuteronomy. In chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, there is an entire recapitulation of the story of Sinai. So to figure out exactly what happened at Sinai, we really have to piece all these narratives together and see what actually happened. The Talmud, in fact, tells us that the Jewish people arrived at Sinai on the first day of the month, the month of Sivan. That's the second month after the Exodus. And on the second day, Moses ascended to heaven and came down. And on the third day, Moses ascended to heaven and came down. And on the fourth day, Moses ascended to heaven and came down. And then on the fifth day, he built the altar and brought the sacrifices. And then on the sixth day, he had no time. So there's a whole, what I like to describe as shuttle diplomacy between God and the Jewish people, and Moshe is running back and forth, conveying messages, almost like a extended negotiation between God and the Jewish people to determine what is going to be the nature of this revelation at Sinai. Now, in chapter 24, we read how God tells Moshe, ascend to the mountain, you and Aaron, and Nadav and Aviv, the two sons of Aaron, and bow down from a distance. Rashi tells us that this is actually not referring to the Sinai experience itself, the revelation, it's on day two. And God tells Moshe the message to convey back to the Jewish people. Moshe goes back down and he conveys the message. And the nation says, okay, whatever God says to do, we will do. And then Moshe writes down the words of God and he erects the altars and the pillars and they bring sacrifices, and he divides the blood into two. And then in chapter 24, verse 7, we read, Vayikach Sefer Abris, Moshe takes the book of the covenant, Rashi says it's the beginning of the Torah, and he reads it in the ears of the nation, and everyone says all that the Almighty says we will do, and we will listen. This is one of the most famous verses in the whole Torah. It's the famous motto, axiom of the Jewish people, Everything that God says, we will do, and then we will listen. And then Moshe takes half the blood that was left from the sacrifices and sprinkles it on the Jewish people, thus completing this blood pact, if you will, this covenant between God and the nation. And then, of course, we have the sign of revelation that was told in last week's parasha, like Rashi tells us, the Torah is not necessarily in chronological order. 
So this is what I want to talk about this week. The nation is willing to commit themselves to God, and they say, we will do and we will listen. Na'aseh, we will do and we will listen. Now, the Talmud a very big deal about this declaration. So I want to read you some of the sources from the Talmud, and then we will study it in depth. So this is from the Talmud of the book of Shabbos, page 88. Darash Rab Simai. Rab Simai expounded at the time where the nation preceded and said, we will do before they said, Nishma, we will listen. 600,000 angels of God descended from heaven and gave every Jewish soul two crowns, one for Naaseh, one for we will do, and one for Nishma, we will listen. Something so tremendous happened here, so transformative happened here, that after the nation said, we will do and we will listen, each person, each soul merited to two crowns brought down by 600,000 ministering angels. But then what happened? Then the Jewish people sinned, and they did the golden calf. And then the mighty said, okay, they're not worthy of these crowns. So he sent a 100 and 20 myriads, i.e. 1.2 million angels. And these are not the good kind. These are the punishing kinds of angels. And they dismantled the crowns. Jewish people, when they said, we will do, we will listen, they got crowns, two crowns apiece. And then once they sinned with the golden calf, each one of them lost their crowns. Now, similar to this, we find later on in the Talmud, in the book of Shabbos on page 145b, going into 146a, it tells us that when Adam and Eve committed the sin in the garden, the snake, the serpent, injected venom, spiritual venom, spiritual contamination into humanity. But the Jewish people, when they stood at Mount Sinai, the spiritual contamination was removed from them. And then, with the sin of the golden calf, 40 days later, the venom returned. So what do we see? We see the Jewish people at Sinai, at the peak of their greatness. They say, we will do and we will listen. And they're so holy and they're so exalted and they're so cleansed. Angels come and tie two crowns atop each person. And the venom, the contamination, the alloys that have existed within us since the sin of Adam and Eve is expunged. And then what happens with the sin of the golden calf? The venom returns and 1.2 million angels come and remove the 1.2 million crowns. Continues the Talmud. What happened to those crowns? Where did they go? All those crowns went to Moses. So Moses, not only did he retain his crown, his crowns, if you will, as an individual member of the Jewish people, he actually acquired all the crowns that the rest of the Jewish people lost. Incredible. And the Kabbalists actually tell us that every Shabbos, we actually are able to reacquire those crowns that we had lost with the sin of the golden calf because when we have Shabbos, it's almost akin to what it was like by Adam and Eve in the garden, what it was like when we were at our apex and zenith, what it was like when we said, we will do and we will listen, and therefore we temporarily get back our crowns, but then after Shabbos, it goes back to Moses. And in fact, the Talmud actually says, in the distant future, i.e. 
in the times of Olam Abba, the times of the afterlife, we're going to get back our crowns, like the Talmud says, that in the times of Olam Abba, in the times of the afterlife, we will have crowns atop our head. Okay, so the Talmud here is describing the tremendous state the Jewish nation reached, that they achieved, that they unlocked, when they said, we will do and we will listen, they achieved this great peak akin to Adam before a sin, tremendous holiness, and then, of course, we lost it with sin of the golden calf. Continues the Talmud. At the time that the Jewish people first said, we will do, and then they said, we will listen, a prophetic, booming voice emanated and said, who revealed to my sons this secret? This statement that the angels use. The Jewish people said, we will do and we will listen. They committed themselves to action before they knew even what they were signing up for. Says God, this is a tremendous secret. Who revealed the secret to my children? This is something that the angels use. And somehow the Jewish people are saying the same thing that the angels say. Continues the Talmud with, a story. This rounds out the Talmudic teachings about this idea. There was a Sadducee who witnessed the great Rava who was studying Torah. Now, who is Rava? If you ever had the great fortune of spending time studying Talmud, Rava is the name of the Babylonian sage that appears most frequently in the books of the Babylonian Talmud. So Rav, of course, is a great hero and sage of our people. So there was a Sadducee, a heretic, who got to witness Rava studying Torah, studying Talmudic ideas. And his fingers were underneath his feet, and he was squeezing his hands or his fingers with his feet, meaning he was so consumed, so enamored, so completely immersed engrossed in the study that he didn't realize that he was injuring himself. And his feet were clamping down on his fingers and his fingers were bleeding. And he was so oblivious to it, he didn't even notice that he was injuring himself because he was so consumed with the study. And that's what the Sadducee, that's what the heretic witnessed. And he says, this nation, these Jews... They're such impulsive people. You spoke first before you got a chance to listen. And look, look at Rava studying. He's such a fool. He's so silly. He's hurting himself. And again, he's acting impulsively. You made a mistake. When you said, we will do and we will listen, you made a mistake. What you should have done is you should have asked to see what's inside it. And if you like it, then you observe it. And if you don't like it, then you don't observe it. And now we see Rava, even though Rava, of course, is thousands of years after the sign of Revelation, Rava is still abiding by the principles of Na'asev and Ishma, we will do and we will listen. So Rava responds to him, listen, we trust God, and regarding us, the verse declares that people who have wholesomeness and wholeheartedness and go straight, so to speak, in the way that God prepares for them, they have the Almighty to guide them. Whereas the people who walk in deceit regarding those people, 
they are perverse and they are rebellious and they will be destroyed. Thus concludes the Talmud's treatment of this subject, the Jewish nation, chapter 24, verse 7, right before the Sinai revelation, they tell God via Moses, Na'asev Ishma, we will do and we will listen, we're committing ourselves to abide by the Torah even before we know what is in it. And this is the zenith of our nation. We're committing to do before we know what's in it. We're like angels. We're using the special line that the angels have. And as a result of that, we got two crowns and we became like Adam before his sin. And we were cleansed of all our contaminants that happened to humanity after the sin of Adam. Amazing. And the Talmud concludes with a story of this Sadducee who's rebuking Rava for his studying, for his intense study of Torah. And he's so oblivious to the pain that he was causing himself. That's the Talmud. Now, the Midrash gives us some more details about this declaration of Na'asev Nishma, we will do and we will listen. It tells us that the Almighty offered the Torah not just to the Jewish people, but to every nation. Every nation was given equal opportunity to get the Torah. And first, the Almighty went to Esav. And he says, okay, do you want the Torah? And they responded, well, what's in it? And the Almighty tells them, well, it says, thou shalt not murder. And the sons of Esav said, how could we do that? How could we not murder? Don't you know our antecedent? Esav was the father of all murderers. We can't abide by the Torah. Okay, so the Almighty said, okay, so this nation is not uh, interested. Let's go to another nation, the nation of Ammon and Moab. This, These, of course, are the nations that came from the sons of Lot that he fathered with his daughters in the aftermath of the overturning of Sodom and Amorah, of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, do you want the Torah, the Almighty says to these nations? And again, they respond, well, what's in it? What's in the Torah? So the Almighty tells them, well, it says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not behave in a licentious manner. And they said to them, well, that's not for us. Don't you know that the essence of our nation is incest and that kind of promiscuity? Not for us. Torah is not for us. Okay, somebody went to the children of Ishmael. Do you want the Torah? Well, what's in it? Thou shalt not steal. How can you say we don't steal? Don't you know our great-grandfather Ishmael? He was someone who was a para-adam. He's a wild man. He's stealing everything. We cannot follow the Torah. And every nation that the Almighty approached, they all responded, what's in it? And the Almighty revealed to them the aspect of Torah that was antithetical to who they were as a people. And they said, you know what? If that's what's in the Torah, we're not interested. And finally, the Almighty went to the Jewish people and said, do you want the Torah? And we didn't ask what's in it. We said, we will do and we will listen. The nations were all given the same offer. But they wanted to inspect the goods before they agreed to it. And when they heard what it entails, they heard what's in it, they discovered that something in it is unpalatable to them, they said, no thanks. And the Jewish people said, we're in. We are going to commit. Before we know what it contains, we will commit ourselves to it. We're in. So I want to ask a few questions on this whole Subject, this Talmudic idea of Na'asev and Ishma, we will do and we will listen. 
The Almighty is offering the Torah, a comprehensive guide to life, how to behave in every conceivable situation. And the nations are given this offer, and they respond, well, what's in it? Give me the details. And because they hear what's in it and it's not for them, they say no thanks. Isn't that a very prudent approach? Doesn't it make sense to know first what's in it? What are you signing up for? What are the terms of the deal before you sign away your life? Why is it a good thing that we walked into this deal blindly? It seems like it's kind of irresponsible. Yet it is the highlight of our nation's history. Question number one. Question number two, the Talmud tells us that Rava is studying very diligently, very intensely, and he's totally oblivious to everything that's happening around him, even his own pain. And the Sadducee says, well, you're very impetuous. You're impulsive. You're too trigger happy. You were then when you said Nasev before you knew what was in it, you agreed to it, and you still are like that now. And of course, Rava responds, he has his rejoinder, and they duke it out. And the Talmud, of course, connects this story to the whole episode of Na'asev and And the question is, what does Rava's intense study have to do with the nation choosing to first say we will do, and only then say we will listen? What does that do with each other? Rava's very intense in his study. He's very committed. He's very diligent. And when the Sadducee sees that, he sees how oblivious he is to his own pain. He says, aha, you are still behaving like those crazy Jews of yore. And you're accepting what you do. You're an impetuous, impulsive nation. What does the impulsivity of accepting the Torah before you know what's in it, what does that have to do with Rava studying Torah diligently, even to the point of oblivion to what's happening to his hand, to his fingers, the fact that he's bleeding? So I want to suggest an approach that shows, I think, what the essence of the acceptance of the Torah was and what our relationship with it is, or perhaps what it should be, and I think also one that shows us a little bit of a model of how to make choices and how to make commitments. And I want to start with something easy and then go a little bit deeper. The Jewish people say, Na'asa we will do and we will listen. They're accepting the terms of the deal before they know the fine print. We look at that and we view that as being naive, being perhaps a bit foolish. How can you agree to terms without knowing what they are? But of course, you and I and everyone we know, we do this all the time. You get a new phone or you install a new app and you got to say, okay, do you want to accept the cookies? Most people don't even know what cookies are. I assume cookies are like chocolate chip cookies. No, no, no. They're cookies and they go into your phone. Anyone has an idea what that actually means? Most people don't know what that means. Okay, accept the terms. You want to read it? It's 5,000 pages worth of legalese. Do you want to read it? Or do you just like agree, agree, accept, 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 accept? Most people, I know there are a few people that are not like that. But most people, all the time in the modern world, are just accepting agreements, agreeing to terms of services, agreeing to all this fine print without even knowing what's in it. Why? Why would you do that? Isn't that irrational? 
Maybe you're signing away your life. And what do you do? You just click agree, 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 whatever. I'm in, whatever. Why do people do that? So here's what I think the answer is. You have a phone. You have a device. You go onto Chrome, a website, let's say. And you know that there's big companies that won't allow something that's too dangerous or too harmful to get on to your phone. Like Apple or, or Android, they have a track record. You can trust them. Now, of course, a lot of people say, well, big tech, I don't trust big tech. But still, they have a history. They have a reputation. They are reliable. You kind of know what you're getting. You could trust them. Well, if we rely on Apple or Google, etc., what about God? Why do we have an easier time relying on these big tech giants than we have to rely on the Almighty? Don't we know for sure that the Almighty won't give us something bad? You would think that the Almighty's credibility and reliability should exceed the trust that we have in anything else. And thereby maybe it actually is quite prudent to accept his gift before you inspect it. The Almighty gives you a gift. I want to give you Torah. This is the Almighty's precious treasure that he's been harboring in the upper spheres, in the upper realms for 974 generations before the world was created. It's something very precious, very holy. So to speak, the Almighty's daughter. It's a gift the Almighty wants to give us. We don't need to inspect it. We know for sure that this is reliable. We're getting something good. That's the simple idea. I want to take this to a little bit of a deeper level. Rava is toiling over the study with such intensity and such focus that he's totally oblivious to everything that's happening around him. He's working really hard in a subject and He's struggling through it and he's totally focused like a laser on the subject matter at hand. He doesn't notice anything else. Why is Rava struggling so hard? Why is the Torah so difficult? Shouldn't it be simple? You'd imagine Rava, one of the greatest sages of all time, he was quite bright, you would imagine. And he can understand it. Why is there toil here? Why is he sweating so hard? Why is he focusing with such intensity? Why is it so difficult to understand Torah on his level that he has to focus with such intensity and such complete, total, unadulterated attention that nothing else is able to penetrate? Complete, deep work, deep focus, deep concentration. Why? Why is Torah so difficult? So I think the answer is that there is an asymmetry between Torah and us. God, of course, is flawless. And his Torah is likewise flawless. But what about us? We are flawed. We are fallible. There's all kinds of problems with humans. And therefore, there's this asymmetry, this incompatibility between us and Torah. Perhaps we can say that the objective of Torah study is to superimpose the Almighty's Torah upon us and thereby force us to acclimate and to harmonize our 
existence, our will, our perspective, our intellect with the Almighty's will. Perhaps we could put it in a different way. The goal of Torah is to upgrade human intellect into being akin to divine intellect. Rava is struggling and toiling in the Torah because he doesn't understand the will of God. And you know what? That's by design. Rava, great sage, of course, is a human. How could a human understand divine will? That's what Torah is all about. It's to acclimate and harmonize our mind with God's mind, to upgrade our human intellect into being godly, to whatever extent, of course, possible. And the Sadducee is saying, you guys are so impetuous, you're so impulsive. You should have asked what's in it. What he is, in fact, identifying for us is the essence of Na'asev and Ishmael. We will do and we will listen. He says, Rava, you are a manifestation, a modern manifestation of Na'asev and Ishmael. We will do and we will listen. We ask the question, what's the connection between commitment before hearing Na'asev and Ishmael to Rava's intense study? Here's the answer. The nation said, we will do and we will subsequently hear. We're going to commit before we know what that entails. There's a deeper message here. It's not just that they're saying we are willing to commit before we know what's in it. It's quite the contrary. The nation is insisting on committing before they know what's in it. The second I say, hey, show me what's in it, I'm evaluating Torah in my pre-existing Human frames of reference, human intellect, human will, human perspective. And that's the problem. We don't want a Torah of humans. We don't want a Torah that fits perfectly without any hard work to our pre-existing frameworks. That's not what we want. If we had to inspect it based upon our pre-existing worldview, we wouldn't want it. Just like the people of Ishmaelites and Esav and Ammon and Moab, every nation has parts of Torah that they reject. It's difficult for them because they are acculturated or societally or they're predisposed to not wanting that. We're a murderous people. Don't tell us how to behave. We're a people that like adultery. Don't tell us how to behave. We're a people that like to steal. That That's our passion. That's our pastime. If we ask what's in it, in effect, we're saying we don't want to change and we want to accept Torah without forcing ourselves to upgrade our existence from being like a human to becoming like an angel, to becoming something more similar to God. If we ask what's in it, in effect, we're saying we don't want to have this transformation. We don't want to have this conflict, this dissonance between human intellect and godly intellect. But that's not what the nation said. They said, we will commit before we know what's in it. We want a divine Torah that's beyond human understanding, that conflicts with our predisposed notions. And then we're going to engage in this struggle and this toil and this focus and this sweat. And of course, in Rava's case, even the blood until we understand it, i.e. 
until we upgrade our perspective into being godly. Torah is the Almighty giving us a gift. He's giving us a chance to level up, to transform ourselves to becoming more godlike. By definition, before we have Torah, it's going to be far, it's going to be distance. We're going to have a problem with Torah. We're humans after all. Humans are flawed. Torah is flawless. It's from the Almighty who is flawless. And thus, whatever areas that we have that don't jive with Torah, that don't dovetail, don't fit in with Torah, there's going to be resistance. And that's the design. The Torah is not supposed to click from the very beginning in every area, because if it did, we would already be angels. We would already be godlike. The Jewish people, they understood a secret. It's a secret that the Almighty says is angelic. You're like the angels who understand this. The secret is you want to accept the Torah specifically before you know what's in it because you understand that being given the Almighty's worldview is the key to you adopting that worldview, you accomplishing that perfection and refinement of yourself and you transcending to becoming a higher level being. I think this idea gives us a much broader perspective of what Torah actually is. Torah is the will of the Almighty, the godly intellect, that's vastly superior to our pre-existing human intellect and human will and human worldview. And it allows us to modify and upgrade our perspective and our worldview to make it compatible with Torah and thus compatible with God. We can mold our brain to become almost like more like God's brain, so to speak. And therefore, Torah will conflict with our pre-existing notions, and that's by design. And Rava shows us that he has such a hard time with it. That's what study is. The study is you're working through the material and you're asking questions and you're trying to see what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. And when something doesn't make sense, that's a problem, but that's also an opportunity to ponder, why does God disagree with me? This is an area where there is some conflict, there's dissonance between me and God. I have a chance over here to upgrade my perspective and make it more Godlike. I don't want to stay small. I don't want to stay with my pre-existing habits and limitations and flaws and drawbacks. The Ishmaelites said, well, I want to stay a thief. Don't tell me don't steal. I want to stay a thief. Jewish people are not like that. Jewish people say we want to know what the Almighty wants. And we don't want to know ahead of time because we are interested in transforming our perspectives and making it more godlike. I think on a very practical level, I think this whole subject gives us a framework for making decisions and making commitments. There's going to be a point in time where you're going to have to pull the trigger. Jewish people, of course, they have a lot of good reasons to rely on God already. He's done so much for them already. He's given them manna, taken them out of Egypt, split the sea, all that. He has the built-in credibility. 
And he's putting them in a situation where they have to accept all of Torah before they know what's in it. They have to make almost like a leap of faith. I think this also, another takeaway from this whole idea, is that if something makes sense, if something checks out, if as far as you can understand, as far as you can see, you've done your due diligence, it makes sense, it checks out, it's good, and the Almighty brings you to this point, at some point you're going to have to take that leap, and once you take that leap, the Almighty has, so to speak, responsibility for that decision. He brought you to it, and he wants you to make that last leap, that last jump, that nasa vanishma, we will do, we will listen, we'll figure out the details later. But I can rely on God because he brought me up to that point. So those are some of my thoughts on nasa vanishma. Let us begin this week's installment of A&Q. And let's go back to the Talmud. The Talmud says that when the Jewish people said nasa vanishma, 600,000 angels came. Each angel was holding two crowns. And each angel tied two crowns atop the heads of the 600,000 Jews that said this. But then 40 days later, they committed the grievous sin of the golden calf. And they had to lose their crowns. And the crowns had to go to Moses. And the Almighty sent 1.2 million bad angels, prosecuting angels, to extract and remove and dismantle the crowns that the Jewish people had. So here's the question. If a single angel can install two crowns, when the Jewish people say, we will do and we will listen, why does it take double the amount of angels to remove the crowns that it takes to install them? Why do you need 1.2 million angels to remove the 1.2 million crowns when you only needed 600,000 angels to install the 1.2 million crowns at the very beginning? Why, when it comes to installing crowns, one angel can install two crowns, whereas when it comes to removing the crowns, you need one angel to remove only one crown, and you cannot have one angel removing two crowns. If you have an answer to this question, and I'll tell you again, you can look at the Talmud in the book of Shabbos, page 88a, where it talks about this. If you have an answer, email me, rabbiwalby at gmail.com. Let's get to last week's A and Q. Again, the question was, why does the Torah tell us about Yisro's sacrifice, about Jethro's sacrifice? It makes a big deal about it. It has to tell it to us for a reason, obviously. And also, it's the first time the Jewish people since the Exodus have not brought any sacrifices that we know of. Of course, this is partial. We do read about sacrifices. But the first sacrifice we hear about after the Exodus is that of Jethro. And the question is, why? Why is it so important to hear about Jethro's sacrifice? So as usual, we have the best audience in the entire podcast universe. It's just incredible. It's right over here. This is it. We're talking together here. We're talking to the best audience in maybe even the history of all podcasts, maybe the history of all media of any sort. So they didn't disappoint. I got so many amazing answers. I want to read to you just six of the different answers that I got from the audience very quickly, and then we'll talk about the two answers uh, that I want to offer as well. First answer I got from the audience was that, after all, Jethro was a convert, and converts have to bring sacrifices. And even though converts have to bring a more minor sacrifice, Jethro was very generous, and he brought a very robust sacrifice, and therefore the Torah wants to 
let us know about Jethro's sacrifice. It's very important because it shows Jethro's commitment. That's one idea. A second idea that the audience shared, and these are, of course, very truncated because a lot of the emails are quite long and detailed. I want to quickly run through them just to give the rest of the audience an appreciation of the brilliance and the wonderful insightfulness of their fellow podcast audience members. So second answer is that Jethro was someone who heard about the entire Egyptian experience all at once. Jewish people, they lived it, and they lived it incrementally. And therefore, the Jewish people were desensitized to the story. And they didn't bring sacrifices because, you know, it happened slowly. It unfolded incrementally. Jethro, he heard it all at once, and he was so inspired, and he brought sacrifices. Another idea, a third idea from the audience, is that Jethro shows us how even the lowliest amongst us, like a recent convert, can and must have a connection with the Almighty. It's not just the rabbis or the clergyman or Moses or Aaron. Someone who just today joined, he already has a portal to connect to the Almighty. Another idea shared from the audience is that the Jewish people, in their Abrahamic magnanimity, they allowed Jethro to offer a sacrifice first, Like Abraham before them, they had a certain knack of hospitality and generosity towards towards the newcomers. And they say, okay, you know, Jethro, why don't you offer a sacrifice first? A fifth idea. Everyone needs sacrifice of some sort to be part of the nation. The rest of the Jewish people already paid their debt with their enslavement in Egypt. And now Jethro wants to join the Jewish people and you have to give sacrifice as well. And finally, the sixth answer from the audience is that Jethro's slaughter of the animals was also a slaughter of his own idols, because after all, he was a recent convert, and like Rashi tells us, that he worshipped all the various different idols, and we know that the Egyptians, they worshipped certain animals, and they would never sacrifice them, and thus when Jethro himself, who was a recent idolater, he's able to sacrifice animals for God, animals that previously were his own deities, that act of, so to speak, martyrdom or of transformation has more salience. So you see, the Parsha podcast audience is indeed fabulous. I want to share with you all uh, two more answers here. First of all, the Talmud, the book of Sanhedrin, page 94a, tells us that in chapter 18, verse 10, so a few verses before Jethro brought the sacrifice. It says, Vayomer Yisro, and Jethro said, Baruch Hashem, blessed is Hashem. Says the Talmud, Genai hu Lemoshe. It is a disgrace to Moshe, to Moses, Vishishim Ribu, and the 600,000 Jews. None of them thanked or blessed God before Jethro did. So maybe there's a certain consistency here. Jethro is blessing God, Baruch Hashem, saying, blessed is Hashem before anyone else, and maybe along these lines, Jethro also brought sacrifices before everyone else, and therefore he, of course, brought sacrifices first, and the Torah tells us about that as well. I had one more answer. This is an answer that I think the audience may be a little bit incredulous to because it's very Kabbalistic, but here's the idea. And if you stayed all the way to the end of the podcast, you deserve it. It's a very... I think, intriguing idea, interesting idea. The Kabbalists, of course, talk a lot about the concept of Gilgul, i.e. reincarnation, meaning that a soul, of course, is permanent. Sometimes the soul doesn't accomplish its stated or necessary goal in this world and has to come back to achieve it 
round two. So we're told that Moses is the reincarnation of Abel. Remember Cain and Abel all the way back in the beginning of Genesis? Cain and Abel, two brothers, sons of Adam and Eve, and they both bring sacrifices or offerings. And Cain is disappointed when his offering is rebuffed and rejected by God, whereas his brother Abel's offering is accepted and he murders him. Tell us the Kabbalists. The reincarnation of Cain is Jethro. The reincarnation of Abel is Moses. So even though in this life, their father-in-law and son-in-law, in their previous life, whatever that means, of course, it's a big subject that I always freely admit that I don't know anything about, but we trust the Kabbalists that they have this figured out. In their previous life, they weren't father-in-law, son-in-law, they were brothers. In fact, the Arizal, the greatest of all the Kabbalists, he points out that the first words between them in, in last week's parasha, in Parsha Yisro, Ani Chosincha Yisro, I am your father-in-law Yisro. He says a message to Moshe, I am your father-in-law Yisro. Ani Chosincha Yisro, I am your father-in-law Yisro. The first letter of these three successive words, Ani Chosincha Yisro, is an Aleph, Aches, and a Yud, which spells Achi, meaning brother, my brother. So yes, of course, I'm your father-in-law, Yisrael, but I'm also your brother because I am Cain and you are Abel and we had our interaction the previous go-round and now we're going to revisit that. We're going to settle the score, if you will. We're going to tie up loose ends. The previous round, Cain and Abel, neither of them accomplished their goal. Abel, of course, his life was cut short. Cain... He was a murderer. He committed this heinous act of fratricide. And specifically, the thing that prompted it all was when Cain brought an offering that was rejected. So perhaps we can speculate that the Torah is telling us Jethro's sacrifice and how it was accepted and how it is being, so to speak, sanctioned by the Torah Maybe that is indicating that Jethro, i.e. Cain in the previous go-around, fulfilled his mission. Previously, he brought a sacrifice, brought an offering. It was rejected. Previously, he was envious of his brother, i.e. Moses, if you follow the, the train of thought or the trail, the breadcrumbs. Now, Jethro has a second chance. And this time, he's not envious of Moses. He's very magnanimous to his son-in-law. He's willing to take a demotion. He's willing to play second fiddle. He's willing to suffer the indignity, if you will, of being someone who is like an outsider, an outcast. And he's totally happy that Moses gets all the glory. In fact, back in Parsha Shmos, he's willing to send Moses back to Egypt. And now he tries again. He brings another sacrifice Previously, he brought a poor gift. It was a stimpy gift. This time, he brings lots of animals. It's much more expensive. And it is indeed accepted by God. And thus, it indicates that he fixed whatever he had left to fix, whatever he needed to refine was indeed accomplished. Maybe the reason why the Torah tells us all about Yisro's sacrifice is to indicate that Jethro, who previously was Cain, has achieved his completion and his perfection.
Maybe. I don't know. It's speculation. If it's not accurate, I definitely think it is interesting and I hope you enjoyed. I thank you all for listening. Have an amazing week. Have a fabulous Shabbos and best regards coming to you again from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. This is Rabbi Akra Volby. This is the Parsha Podcast, RabbiWolbyJim.com. I look forward to hearing from you.